We ended last week in Esther chapter 4 in a bit of a cliffhanger. In chapter 4 you have all of the, the decree that has went out from Haman that all of the Jews will be wiped from the earth. That on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews, all of their children, all of their belongings, all of their livestock are all to be utterly and completely annihilated. And so Mordecai, the cousin of the queen, Esther, who is in the harem of the king, unknown to be a Jew at all, the, her cousin comes and raised her like a daughter and pleads with her to go before the king. That her people might be spared. That her people might be saved. But it wasn't that simple. To go before the king was a suicide mission. You did not go to the king uninvited. If you were to go to the king uninvited and he were to not show favor to you by lowering the golden scepter, you were to be beheaded on the spot. Nonetheless, Esther resolves to go as we end chapter 4. And she says, if I perish, I perish. As chapter 5 begins, Esther, in fact, does go before the king. She puts on her royal clothes that he might see her status in his household. As Esther would have stood in the doorhold before the throne of the king, what would have immediately caught her eye was the median soldier standing behind his throne holding an axe. The purpose of the axe was to behead anyone who was so arrogant. So prideful as to approach the throne of the king uninvited and unwanted. But the king extends to her the golden scepter. He shows favor to Esther. And knowing that she must be coming to, to, to take such great risk upon herself as to go before the king unannounced and uninvited. He realizes he, she must have some great request that she wants to bring to him. And so Xerxes promises her, Esther, whatever you want, whatever your request is, I will answer it. I will answer it up to half of my kingdom. I will give you whatever it is that you want. Now one of the things that I know about all of you ladies this morning, all of the moms and all of the wives, is that you know the way to your man's heart, don't you? You know what makes him tick. You know how to break news to him. You know how to do things, right? You know. Esther was no different. You see, we already know Xerxes likes to party, right? Remember how the book opens? Xerxes likes to party. And so what does Esther do? Esther invites him to a party. She says, guess what, king? I'm throwing a party just for you. You and your second in command, Haman, it's an exclusive party, the most exclusive, exclusive of exclusive. And so I want you to come to my feast. And so she throws him a party and he comes and he says, all right, Esther, now what is the request that you have? Up to half of my kingdom, it is yours. And Esther says, we're not done partying yet, all right? I'm going to throw another party tomorrow. And tomorrow when I throw the second party, I promise you at that point I will bring to you my request. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. We're going to be in Esther chapter 5. Again this morning we're going to cover this in pieces. And so let's stand together as we read this first section. And then you can remain seated as I read the others. We're going to begin in Esther chapter 5 verse 9. God's word says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So when we catch up to Haman in Esther 5, verse 9, if we were to ask Haman in that moment how his day was going, what Haman would certainly say is that he's having the best day he's had in a while. I mean, things are good for Haman. Haman has been promoted. He is the second most powerful man in kingdom, perhaps in the world. Haman has money. Haman has prominence. Haman has power and popularity. Haman has everything. And now the queen has invited him as the only additional guest to the most exclusive party in all of the world. Yeah, if you would have asked Haman that day, he was filled with joy and alcohol and arrogance. Haman was having the day of his dreams. That is, until as he's walking by, he passes Mordecai. The thing that got all of this started, the, the, all the decree, was Mordecai refusing to bow down. And now he has issued a decree to utterly annihilate Mordecai and all of his people. And he sees Mordecai. And what is Mordecai doing? Standing. Standing. Still disrespecting Haman. Standing. Not even trembling. Not even worried about the decree that Haman has issued. This just sets him off. This, this just causes Haman just to, just to spiral into this immediate just fury. And it's like everything that happened that was good, everything that had happened that was, he was excited about, the Bible says that his, his joy left him. Isn't it amazing how quickly it went away? Isn't it amazing how quickly he, he lost his joy? How quickly the, the happiness of Haman went away. As quickly as it came, it left even more quickly. Have you ever been there? I wonder this morning how many of you could identify with Haman here. That you can be having a great day. Things can be going your way. Things can be going just if you were to write them down exactly to script. But then when you see him. Then when you see her, it's like immediately your day is flipped upside down. Immediately the, the bitterness and the hatred that is sinfully in your heart immediately turns all of your, your emotions and all of your experiences completely upside down. The, boot, the root of bitterness has taken over your heart. Your heart is filled with venom and it's toxic. 
And if we were to ask you, why do you have such venom? You would say to us, perhaps, the same thing that Haman would say. Haman would say, you don't understand the level of disrespect that he shows me. You don't understand the way that he reviles me. You don't understand the way that he shows me up. Perhaps you would say something similar. You would say, you don't know what he did to me. You you don't know how she ran my name into the mud. You don't know the rumors that were spread about me. You don't know all that's went down. Justifying the bitterness in your heart. Justifying the hatred in your heart. Which in fact has become an idol for you. As it rules your emotions and rules your life and rules your happiness. I wonder how many of you this morning could identify with Haman. You see, Haman had it all. Haman had it all. By his own admission, to make himself feel better, what does Haman do? Haman gathers all of his buddies. He gets his wife. He gets his family. He gets all of his boys from the king's court. And he gathers them all around to do what? Just to talk about how awesome he is. Just talk about how good his life is. And so Haman, with all of his buddies and all of his, all of his family gathered around him, begins to tell him, have I not been promoted? Do I not have more money than anybody else would want? Do I, not, do I not have a position in the king's court that everybody else in all of the world would just dream of having? Is life not going my way? And yet, to Haman's own admission... Though he is recounting how great his life is, though he is recounting his own success, though he is recounting the ambitions that he has achieved and the wealth that he has obtained, though he is recounting all of that, Haman, by his own admission, says this is nothing as long as Mordecai is alive. That the bitterness in my heart, the hatred in my heart, is so consuming my life, so taking over my life... Everything else that I have, everything else that I've ever wanted is meaningless to me. I think this teaches us something important here. The issues of the heart are never remedied by treasures of the world. Issues of the heart are never remedied by treasures of the world. Haman had everything in the world and yet he was still miserable. Haman had everything that he could ever want. He had power, money, he had had it all. And yet, he was still so filled with hatred that his joy could leave him in an instant. It's the same for you. It's the same for me. It's the same for us this morning. You could have a new baby. You can move into a nicer house. You can go on a vacation that you've always wanted to go on and it will not remedy the the anger and the bitterness that you have towards your husband or your wife. You can go to nightclubs filled with people. You can surround yourselves with friends in riotous laughter and it will not stop you from feeling as though you are the only person in the world with perpetual misery and loneliness. You can drive a hundred miles an hour. You can jump out of an airplane. You can do every adrenaline junkie move that you can comprehend, that you can think of, and yet you can still feel dead inside. You can't solve the problems of your heart. You can't remedy the sickness in your heart with the treasures of the world. 
pack it full, pack the void full with everything that you can find, and you will still find yourself in utter misery with insecure joy. Why is that? It's superficial. It's, you're, you're treating the symptom. The only thing the treasures of the world can do in your life is treat the symptom of your heart. Isn't that what we see with, with Mordecai, I mean with uh, Haman? Th think about it. You can have a broken leg, right? And if you were to go to the doctor, they could give you medicine that would make you stop feeling it. You're, you could go literally from writhing in pain to being completely at ease, your leg numb, not worrying about it at all. But what's going to happen? In a few hours, maybe in a day, the medicine's going to wear off, isn't it? The pain's going to come back. The misery's going to come back. Isn't that what happens to Haman? Haman goes from, from being happy and joyful to having all of that flipped on its head in a second. Why? It feels good to buy something. It feels good to go on a vacation. It feels good to go out with your buddies. It feels good to laugh for a little while. But the truth is, is you still have to go home. You still have to lay in your bed at night. You still have to look in your mirror in the morning. And in those moments, the misery comes flooding back. The treasures of the world can only treat the symptoms of the heart, not the cause, not the root. Brothers and sisters, this morning, stop trying to remedy the issues of your heart with the treasures of this world. Stop. It's going to leave you thirsty. It's going to leave you hungry. It's going to leave you hurting. It's going to leave you miserable. It's going to cause you to spiral in despair. Now contrast Haman with Mordecai here in chapter 5. So we have Haman, and Haman is on this, this roller coaster of, of happiness and misery, isn't he? Boy, you guys can, can, can identify with that roller coaster, can't you? The, you know, one second happy, next second, next second miserable. One second, he's, he's been invited to the queen's banquet. He's, he's considering all of his promotion, and he's happy. Then in the next instant, he sees Mordecai, and he's miserable. And then the next second, he's with all of his friends, and they say, well, you know what you ought to do? You're so powerful, just, just build an impressive gallows, and you can hang Mordecai there. And what does he feel then? Vengeful. And then it pleases him, and so he's happy. And so he's, he's on this complete roller coaster. Every single person that finds their security in the world will always have insecure joy. They will always, always be filled with insecurity. Your joy will always be erratic and insecure. It will be here one second and gone the next. But not Mordecai. What about Mordecai? Mordecai, it gives us one sentence about Mordecai, doesn't it? And what does it say? It says that when, when Haman comes to Mordecai, that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled. In other words, for Mordecai, there was a steadiness. For, for Mordecai, there was a consistency. Remember, the decree has been, this is the first time that we've read of, of Mordecai being in the presence of Haman since the decree to kill all of the Jews was issued. Mordecai should be terrified about the judgment that is to come. Mordecai should be terrified of further angering Haman and perhaps even expediting the judgment that is to come. And yet when he sees, Mordecai, uh, sees Haman, what does he do? He remains standing. And he's not there with his hands trembling and, and sweating and, and 
trembling with his voice and afraid of what would happen. He's not kind of going halfway down and coming halfway up and, and on the fence about what to do. No, he neither rises nor trembles. There's consistency in the life of Mordecai. How different is that from Haman? In Haman, we see insecurity. In Haman, we see instability. We see Haman high and low and high and low. But in Mordecai, we see him even and consistent. How is Mordecai able to do that? Because the truth should be that Haman should be the happy one and Mordecai the one in despair, right? Haman's the one with the power. Haman's the one that's issued the decree. Haman's the one with the money. Mordecai's the one who's going to die along with all of his people. So how is it that Mordecai is so much more stable, so much more secure than Haman is? I think it goes back to what he said in chapter 4. You remember what Mordecai says to chapter 4? Remember, Esther is afraid and she's scared, certainly trembling, certainly nervous about what would happen if she were to go before the king. And what does Mordecai say to her to give her courage? He says, deliverance is coming for the Jews, Esther. Deliverance will come, whether it's through you or somebody else, whether it's through what you do or through some other circumstance that God brings. Deliverance will come. What is Mordecai doing? He is calling her mind to think of the sovereignty of God. He is calling her mind to remember the goodness of God. That God will uphold his promises to his people. That God will uphold his covenants to his people. And that God is powerful enough, powerful enough to make sure that anything that comes against him will do, will lose and will not stand. And so what we see in Mordecai's life is that a confidence in the sovereignty of God brings security and stability that we can't find in this world. The world leaves us insecure. The sovereignty of God allows us to stand resolved. What about you? What kind of insecurities are in your life? What makes your heart race? What makes you afraid of tomorrow coming? What causes you to bow down to the Hamans in your life? What causes you to try to pack yourself filled with the, uh, the treasures of this world? Can I give you some wisdom this morning? Preach to the insecurities in your life. Whatever those things are, Whatever those things are that cause your heart to race, whatever those things are that cause you to fear tomorrow, whatever those things are that cause you to compromise your conviction and bow down to men like Haman, preach to them. Preach to them. Find them in your life and then preach to them that your God is good, that your God loves you, that your God will never forsake you, that your God will never back down. Preach to them that your God is not only good, but he is able and willing and sovereign and in control. And that he will come into your life and he will deliver you and he will provide for you and he will protect you. And he will use you for his glory and his will. The insecurities in your life. Those things that keep you on this roller coaster of, of misery and happiness. Preach to them this morning. Preach to them that they won't win. So in response, that Haman does the only thing that he can think to do. He builds a gallows so high that the only thing that would rival it in size is his own ego. The 75 foot high. And we move into chapter 5. Esther 5 says, On the third day Esther put on her royal robe and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. 
in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne and the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw, I'm sorry, (laughs) chapter 6, I was reading chapter 5. I was thinking, man, that's not what I'm preaching this morning. What in the world is that? That would have made for an uncomfortable sermon. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done to him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. When we come to chapter 5, this is the hinge point of the book of Esther. This is when everything changes. This is when the the tide begins to shift. We come to Esther Esther 6 and what happens? The king can't sleep. Remember, uh, Haman has just uh, resolved that he's going to execute Mordecai the very next day. And the king can't sleep. He's got insomnia. Some of you have been there. And the king does what you do when you can't sleep. He says, bring in the most boring thing that you can think of and read it to me. Now, we have to read it for ourselves, but he's the king and he's a boss. And so he gets it read to him. And so he has them bring in the annals of the king, the chronicles of the king, where they write down just the different things that happen on a day-to-day basis and the the operations of the kingdom and and the way things happen in the king's court. The thing that you would kind of be the history book. It would kind of be the presidential library for King Ahasuerus. He says, bring it in here. Now understand, this would not be enthralling reading. This would be like reading the 20,000 pages of Obamacare, okay? This is not what you read for a, for a good rise, all right? This is not what you read for a good time. And so he comes and they're reading. And what, do, what does he come across? He comes across what happens between chapter 2 and chapter 3, right? Remember in chapter 2, Mordecai spoils an assassination plot against the king. And when we get to chapter 3, we, we are expecting that Mordecai is going to be rewarded. We're expecting that Mordecai is going to get his credit, get his due, but instead Haman is promoted. Well, guess what story just happens to come across the king's ears as he's trying to sleep that night? It's the story of Mordecai. It's the story about Mordecai showing allegiance to the king, showing loyalty to the king by guarding the king and protecting the king from the assassination. And the king is humiliated. The king is embarrassed that he has not rewarded such royalty to his throne. And so he endeavors that he is going to protect Mordecai, or that he is going to reward Mordecai. Now, to the astute reader, to the perceptive reader, we know things are shifting here. We know that things are changing here. That things are not going to go the way that Haman wants them to go. Now, remember what we said in the very first week. Esther is the opposite of Exodus, isn't it? In Exodus, what do we have? We have a a scenario that's very similar in a lot of ways. We have the people of God under the rule of a pagan king, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And this king is oppressing the people of God, and God has promised that he will deliver them from Egypt. And how does God do it? 
God does it through the miraculous, doesn't he? God sends plagues and he, he splits the Red Sea and he rains bread down from heaven. He pours water out of a rock. And God delivers his people through the utterly miraculous. And then we come to Esther. And there's no water coming out of a rock. There's no bread falling out of the sky. Instead, what is there? Insomnia. Insomnia. God is going to work through insomnia. He is going to work through the sleeplessness of a pagan king. We're learning something. God most often accomplishes the supernatural through the ordinary. You understand that? God most often accomplishes his divine will through ordinary means. What could God have done? God could have sent a pillar of fire to hit Haman right on the spot and burn him down to the soles of his shoes, couldn't he? And man, that would have been impressive. God could have opened up the earth. We read in, in, in other places in the Bible where, where God opens up the earth and swallows his enemy and then closes the earth on top of him. Now that is an attention getter. He could have opened up the earth, all of the Persians just followed, like the, the castle at Susa just poof, into the earth. Close back up. Go ahead, my people. In Joshua, we read about God taking and, and hitting the enemy with hell, with large pieces of ice, nailing them in the head with it, and striking an entire army dead and impotent. God could have done that. But this isn't how God usually works, is it? This isn't how God most often works. God most often accomplishes the remarkable. God most often accomplishes his will. God most often accomplishes the supernatural through the ordinary. In your own life, how many times have you been woke, uh, awakened in the middle of the night to only pray to the Lord and get clarity on something that you had been longing for for a long time? I wonder how many of you didn't get the job that you wanted, and it was spared you from a lifetime of misery. I wonder how many of you had a romantic interest break up with you, and it broke your heart and felt like it ruined your world. And in fact, God was protecting you and delivering you from a lifetime of despair. I wonder how many times God has used the ordinary in your life has used ordinary circumstances and ordinary people and ordinary ways to position you and to prepare you and to put you in the spot that you might bring him, bring him maximum glory with your life, that you might be in the very will of God so that you can thrive and so that you can bring everybody to know Christ that he has equipped you to do it. Think about your own salvation. How were you saved? Did a, did a burning bush roll into your bedroom and, and beckon your attention? Tell you to take off your night slippers that you're on holy ground? Probably not. Were you riding on Golden Springs Road, headed to the Oxford Exchange to go, to go shopping, when all of a sudden you were struck with blindness and scales covered your eyes and the Lord called you to salvation? Or... Were you raised by ordinary mom and dad that took you toward an ordinary church week after week after week? Sometimes against your will to hear an ordinary man preach the extraordinary word of God and the spirit begin to slowly convict you of your sin and reveal to you your need of God and you cried out to him in salvation. 
God did the extraordinary. God did the supernatural. God did the divine in an unmiraculous way. This is how he most often works for us. What a God we serve this morning. How inscrutable are his ways. What would be more impressive? What is harder to do? Is it harder for the God of heaven to send a, a lightning bolt to strike a man dead? Or is it harder for God to take billions and billions and billions of people and billions and billions and billions of decisions and billions and billions of events and circumstances and use them as threads of providence to weave them all together at the right point, at the right time, that his will and his glory is accomplished? Brothers and sisters, our God is not just the God of lightning. Our God is the God of the ordinary. Our God is the God of the everyday. Our God is in the background bringing to be, manifesting his will in ways that we can't see, we can't know, but can glorify his name that he is there. And that brings rest to us. I call this the ordinary means of providence. That God brings to bear his will in our lives, in the life of our church, in the life of our children, for the glory of his will, most often through ordinary means. And what about the timing about all, in all of this? Did you notice the timing in all of this and how significant this is to the story? When he realizes this, when, the, when it comes to the king's attention, when he's, when he's sleepless and he's going through the insomnia and he's facing all of this, who's in the court? Mordecai, I mean, uh, Haman's in the court. And why is Haman in the court? He's going to get his rubber stamp like he has on everything else that he's brought to the king that he might execute him. And it's in that moment, that exact moment, that it comes to the king's attention that he has never rewarded Mordecai for Mordecai's goodness. So if it had been any later, if, if God would have kept him awake any later, if it had been the next night, it would have been too late, wouldn't it? If it would have been the next afternoon, it would have been too late. Perhaps even just a few hours, it would have been too late. Mordecai would have already been executed on the gallows. What if it would have been earlier? Why didn't God just deliver the people in chapter 2? Why didn't God just never let this come to be? Do you remember what we said happened yes, uh, last week in chapter 4? God brings revival to his people, doesn't he? God brings repentance to his people. He draws his people close to him. He allows them to, to, to know him and to experience his grace in a way that they had not in perhaps generations experienced. They would have missed it. It would have been worse for them. It would have been worse off for his people to have not been threatened, stayed outside of revival, in revolt against the Lord, indifferent to the Lord, than it would for the decree to be issued to face what seems to be certain death, only to be called to revival by God. What are we reminded of? The timing of the Lord is perfect. The timing of the Lord is perfect. It's never late. It's never early. It's always on time. It's impeccable. It's impeccable. God brings to be, at the exact moment, at the exact time, the right circumstances, the right moments, the right job, the right woman, the right man, all of it at the right time. God's timing is impeccable. It's not even an accident that you're in Iron City on Mother's Day today to hear this sermon. His timing in your life is undeniably perfect. Now, we have trouble with God's timing, don't we? 
Isn't this what we struggle with perhaps most? For those of us that love the Lord, for those of us that want to bring honor to Him and bring glory to Him, don't we have trouble with His timing? I find it to be true in my own life. I find it to be true in so many of the people that I counsel with. That it is somehow far easier for us to entrust our sinfulness to God. Far easier for us to trust into Him our deliverance from hell and a deliverance from condemnation than it is to trust Him with the timing of the small things of life. Brothers and sisters, we can trust the Lord. We can trust the Lord. In fact, we could even say that we see this most clearly in our worrying, don't we? Isn't this where we see our, that our distrust in the timing of the Lord most clearly? And our propensity to continually worry all the time. And I, I'm telling you this as a worrier, okay? That is a thorn in the flesh for me. It is a weakness for me. I, I have trouble sleeping sometimes. I have trouble eating sometimes. And I, I, I've had, I had the shingles when I was, I think, 20 years old. The doctor said from worry. Moms, you're here. It's, it's your day. But who worries more than a mom does? You worry about the safety of your kids. You worry about the health of your family. You worry about the decisions that they make. You worry about where they end up. But for all of us that are worriers, for all of us that are concerned about the timing of God, for all of us that, that find ourselves sleepless at night, it's important for us to remember that we are living in sin when we worry. That we are living in disobedience to the commandment of Christ. When he says, do not be anxious for tomorrow. And why is it sinful for us to worry? For us to worry is an indictment on the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Worry is a form of unbelief, brothers and sisters. Worry shows that we aren't sure that God is good enough to care or powerful enough to do anything about it. But your patience... Your patience in the timing of the Lord, your patience in God's timing says something about your confidence in God's goodness. This is why the scriptures, we go to Psalm 130 or Jeremiah, throughout the scriptures, what is it telling us to do? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Waiting is an exercise of faith. Waiting is an opportunity of faith. What this morning are you having trouble trusting to the Lord? Where are you having difficulty trusting his timing? What are you waiting on that seems like it's just never going to happen? Seems like it's just never going to come. Can I just ask you to do something for, for a second? When, when God would bring his people through the wilderness and God would bring his people into the promised land, throughout their history, one of the thing, things God would do is he would ask them to perhaps build a big pile of rocks in that place. And he would call them, he said, that way every time you walk past that pile of rocks, you'll remember that in that place, I showed up. That in that place, I delivered you. That in that place, I had your back. And at the right time, in the right moment, in the right way, my sovereignty and my goodness were undeniable. In your life, what pile of rocks do you have? Look at them. Where, do you, where can you look back and in retrospect see the perfect timing of the Lord where in retrospect can you think back and think man I thought he was never going to come through and then when he came through it was remarkable it blew my doors off like I can't even explain to you all that happened 
Look back through your life, through the museum that makes it up, and look at the pile of rocks there and be reminded that your God is good and your God is sovereign and your God is reigning and trust your heart to the Lord. Use this time of waiting. Use this time of of no answer as a time and an opportunity of faith to exercise for your Lord. Let's read the rest of chapter 6 this morning. Verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to him, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let, the, let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man who brings the, who the, whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wives Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Perhaps my favorite part in the whole book. You have Haman, so arrogant. So egotistical, so narcissistic. The king says, if I'm going to honor someone, if I'm going to reward someone, how should I do it? And Haman's very first thought, in fact, his only thought, well, that's got to be me. That's got to be me. Like, obviously, if the king's going to honor anybody, I'm his man, I'm his boy, he's going to honor me. And so he goes through his dream list of things that he wants. Remember, he didn't need the money, so he doesn't ask for money. He didn't, need, he didn't need the promise. He has the promise. What does he ask? He says, treat me as though I am the king himself. And the king looks, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall? The king looks at him. And he says, that's perfect. Go and do to Mordecai just as you have said. Imagine the facial expression. Imagine just how that's just this heap of burning coals thrown on his head, right? As Jesus would say. Imagine. And so grimacing and through his teeth, he parades Mordecai, his mortal enemy, through the street saying, this is what the king does to somebody that brings him honor. And I love this. What's the picture? Do you see the picture? God could have just struck his enemy dead, couldn't he? God could have given him a heart attack. God could have killed him with a bad case of the measles. God could, they, they didn't have medicine. There were all kinds of avenues that God could have taken to taking out Haman. But that's not enough, is it? No, he humiliates Haman. He taunts him. 
Brothers and sisters, that's how sovereign our God is. Those that believe they can come against him. Those that believe they can stop him. Those that believe in some way they can stifle his almighty will. They come before him and he taunts them. And he humiliates them. Even those powerful people in the world. No enemy against God. No enemy against the people of God. That's us can stand. God will taunt them all. And this, in fact, is what he did on the cross as the very cross that was intended to crucify Jesus and wipe him from the memory of history. God used it instead to divide history and to deliver all of us by his sovereign grace. Our God humiliates his enemies. Our God humiliates our enemies. Let us rest this morning in his sovereign goodness. Let me pray for us.